0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 27 edition of Warcomp Comp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folse, an attorney with Floyd, Scarn and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that an employer's subrogation rights includes all benefits paid by the employer, even if not awarded during a trial. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Duncan versus Walmart Stores. In 2012, Denise Duncan was acting within the course and scope of her employment with Acosta Incorporated when she fell and injured herself on a Walmart store's premises. Hartford Accident and Indemnity Company was Acosta's workers' compensation insurer and paid Duncan more than $152,000 in benefits. In addition, Duncan sued Walmart Stores Incorporated in civil court for personal injuries. The trial court entered judgment finding Walmart liable for Duncan's injuries. Hartford Accident and Dempney Company applied for a lien on Duncan's judgment, including medical expenses and temporary disability payments for lost wages. But the Superior Court judgment she received did not include compensation for Duncan's lost wages because she did not seek those damages at trial. Thus, the trial court granted Hartford a lien on Duncan's judgment, but reduced the lien to exclude the indemnity payments for lost wages. Hartford appealed the trial court's post-judgment order, arguing that the court exceeded its authority by reducing the lien amount for the temporary disability it paid. The Court of Appeal agreed and reversed the trial court in the unpublished case. The labor code permits an employer to recover workers' comp benefits it has become obligated to pay in three ways. First, it can bring an action directly against the tortfeasor. Or, it can join as a party plaintiff or intervene in an action brought by the employee. And finally, it allows the employee to prosecute the action and then apply for a first lien against the resulting judgment or settlement. The Labor Code then goes on to provide that all benefits required to be paid by the employer are deemed the compensation and special damages of Labor Code 3856B and are subject to the employer's lien. The court reasoned that the Labor Code's plain language and the case law applying it granted Hartford a first lien on the judgment and the amount it paid Duncan for workers' comp benefits. Duncan's choice not to seek lost wages at trial does not diminish Hartford's lien rights under the workers' compensation statutory scheme. And the Court of Appeal also ruled that the employer's obligation to make a post-injury accommodation must relate to a disability. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of White versus the City of Los Angeles. Anthony White worked as a custodian for Los Angeles World Airports, a department of the city of L.A. While off-duty in 2005, he sustained several gunshot wounds to his left leg. He was briefly hospitalized and took several medical leaves of absence to recover from his non-industrial gunshot injury. He returned to work in May 2006 and was assigned to perform light-duty tasks in a warehouse. At the end of August 2006, White took another medical leave of absence, which lasted for about two years. White's physician claimed he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and intractable pain secondary to his gunshot wound in 2005. But in 2008, during his leave, White was arrested in Arizona and was charged with nine felony counts related to identity theft and fraud. When White returned to work in 2008, his prior position as a day shift custodial supervisor was not available, so the airport placed him in an available position at the same level on the graveyard shift. White did not like working the night shift and requested a transfer to the day shift as a reasonable accommodation for disabilities related to his 2005 non-industrial gunshot wound injury. However, White failed to provide the airport with any viable explanation why working the day shift rather than the night shift would impact his disability. The airport denied his reasonable accommodation request. White then resigned from his position in 2010. On the same day, he began serving a sentence on the two felony charges in Arizona. He subsequently filed the present lawsuit against the airport, the city and others, in which he alleged a variety of disability-related employment claims under the Fair Employment and Housing Act. The court granted the airport's non-suit motion on several of White's claims, and a jury found in favor of the airport on his remaining claims. The defense outcome was affirmed in the unpublished case of White versus the city of Los Angeles. White's primary contention on appeal is that the evidence does not support either the jury's verdict or the court's nonsuit. The Court of Appeal held that the evidence does not support White's assertion that the airport refused to consider any accommodation absent a showing of a permanent restriction. During the discussions with White about his request for an accommodation, The airport focused mainly on whether White had any limitations due to his disability and, if so, how working during the day rather than at night might impact those limitations. Given that White said he could perform his job without any accommodation and the city's medical office cleared White to return to work without any restrictions, the airport's request for some additional information regarding his request for accommodation was not unreasonable. The Francis Stevens case is headed back to the Court of Appeal after the WCAB ruled that a portion of the medical treatment guideline relied upon by the IMR process was unlawful and that the WCAB now has wide discretion to be involved in the IMR process. Stevens versus WCAB involved Francis Stevens, who tripped and broke her foot as she carried boxes of magazines. She was diagnosed with chronic or complex regional pain syndrome and claims to be mostly confined to a wheelchair and was awarded total permanent disability. For several years, she had the assistance of a home health aide until late 2012 when the aide was injured. This led the PTP to submit an RFA to the state fund for a replacement aide, which was submitted to UR and denied. The request was also denied after the IMR process. Stevens appealed the IMR decision, but the work comp judge found there was no provision for a reversal since the labor code provides only limited circumstances upon which IMR can be reversed. Stevens earlier challenged the constitutionality of the IMR process, and the First District Court of Appeal concluded that her state constitutional challenges fail because the legislature has plenary powers over the work comp system under the state constitution. And it concluded that her federal due process challenge failed because California's scheme for evaluating treatment requests is fundamentally fair and affords workers sufficient opportunities to present evidence and be heard. But although Stevens may have lost the battle in the Court of Appeal, she may not have lost the war since she was given a second chance to prove her case on the merits. The Court of Appeal also concluded that the WCAB misunderstood its statutory authority in one respect when it reviewed her appeal. It said that under the 2013 reforms, the board is empowered to review an IMR decision to consider whether care was denied without authority because the care is authorized under the MTUS. The case was remanded to the board to consider whether Stevens's request for a home health aid was denied without authority. And indeed, the WCAB recently ruled in its opinion and decision after remitter that the 2009 Workers' Comp Treatment Guideline is unlawful and invalid since it fails to address the medical treatment in the form of personal home care services sought by Ms. Stevens. It concluded that the 2009 guideline is contrary to California law and the IMR determination that relied on it was therefore adopted without authority. The state fund responded by filing a petition for writ of review with the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal issued a writ of review, which means that the entire dispute will now be heard again in that tribunal. However, the outcome is many, many months, if not years, away. And now our crime report. A unit of Amerisource Bergen Corporation, one of the largest U.S. drug wholesalers, has agreed to pay $625 million to resolve a U.S. government probe involving pre-filled syringes. The agreement comes on top of a $260 million criminal penalty that the subsidiary Bergen Specialty Group agreed to pay in September as part of a criminal guilty plea. Amerisource Bergen admitted that its subsidiary, Medical Initiatives, packaged syringes of cancer drugs at an Alabama facility that was not registered with the FDA as required by federal law, as it pled guilty to a misdemeanor charge. The company also admitted that the subsidiary also illegally dispensed syringes based on order forms that were not prescriptions signed by medical practitioners. Prosecutors also charged that medical initiatives prepared syringes by pooling drugs sold in glass vials that were meant for a single use and did not maintain a sterile environment in its facility, resulting in contamination in some syringes. Amerisource Bergen did not plead guilty to those charges or admit any wrongdoing related to them. And another federal judge rejected a plea deal that was part of Agerion Pharmaceuticals Incorporated's recent agreement to pay $40.1 million to resolve probes of its marketing of a cholesterol drug saying it was not in the public interest to approve the plea bargain. Federal Judge District Judge William Young ruled that the Justice Department's deal with the Novellion Therapeutics Inc. unit unduly hobbles his duties as a judge by restricting his ability to impose a sentence. The federal judge also said the agreement showed the shocking disparity between the treatment of corporations and individuals in our criminal justice system. He went on to say that while people who plead guilty face judges with discretion on sentencing, corporations like a jury on can obtain deals that restrict what punishment the judge can impose, giving them the most effective damage control. The judge criticized the plea deal's lack of any payment to victims and said the agreement failed to justify fully why its financial terms were acceptable. The judge, who at least twice before rejected similar corporate plea deals, ordered the case to be ready for trial. Prosecutors claim that after the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 2012 approved Juxtapid for treating high cholesterol in people with a rare genetic disease, Egerion promoted it for patients who did not have that condition. As part of the deal with the Justice Department, Egerion agreed to plead guilty to two misdemeanor drug misbranding violations of the FDA Act and pay $36 million to resolve criminal and civil claims. The DWC has suspended nine more medical providers from participating in California's work comp system. This brings the total number of providers suspended this year to 94. The providers were suspended for fraud or other criminal actions. One of them was Satish Narayanapa Babu of Illinois, a physician who was convicted on federal charges of medical fraud and fraudulently obtaining controlled substances in 2015. The Medical Board of California has revert, revoked his medical license. Also, UC Chukwudi of Gardena, a physician, was indicted in 2013 in federal court on federal conspiracy and health care fraud charges for defrauding Medicare in a scheme involving DME. He, the provider Adeline Equebellum, Uche Chuduri, and Charles Okoye and others were convicted. He failed to appear at a pretrial proceeding as, and was declared a fugitive. The Medical Board of California revoked his license in 2017. Also suspended was Charles Okoye of Carson, the physician that was convicted in federal court for conspiracy to commit health care fraud for also the same DME charge. He surrendered his Physicians and Surgeons Certificate in 2015. The third participant of Cardina uh, was the DME provider who worked with them, was convicted in federal court on multiple counts of healthcare fraud and illegal kickbacks. Also, Victoria Kim of Los Angeles, a physician who pled guilty in federal court on a felony charge of receiving illegal kid backs for home health care referrals. The Medical Board of California revoked her medical license in 2016. Also suspended was Daria Renee Milan of Corona. She's a registered no- nurse who pled guilty in Riverside County in 2015 to a DUI and December 2015 to misdemeanor child endangerment. The California Board of Registered Nursing revoked her license. The following providers participated in an illegal kickback scheme to issue medically unnecessary DME prescriptions to Medicare. Victoria One Year board of Ontario and former owner of Fendi Medical Supplies, was convicted in federal court for conspiracy to commit health care fraud in 2012 for submitting false and fraudulent claims to Medicare. Goodwin Onierbor of Ontario, a DME provider and corporate officer of Fendi Medical Supplies, was also convicted in federal court in 2013 for conspiracy to commit health care fraud, health care fraud, and conspiracy to pay kickbacks. And Sri Janyanthavajanthi of Anaheim Hills, a physician, was convicted in federal court in 2013 for conspiracy to commit health care fraud, health care fraud, and conspiracy to pay and receive kickbacks. His medical license was revoked in 2016. AB 1244, which went into effect on January 1, requires the DWC Administrative Director to suspend any medical provider, physician, or practitioner from participating in the work comp system in cases such as these. Daniel Rush was sentenced to 37 months in prison for breaching his fiduciary duties to the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, that's the UFCW, and participating in a money laundering scheme following his guilty plea last June. In 2010, he conspired with Northern California applicant attorney Mark Terbeek and others to structure about $420,000 in illegal drug proceeds into the banking system. Although the money was a loan from someone in the cannabis industry, Rush deliberately mischaracterized monthly interest payments as consulting fees. Rush also accepted kickbacks from attorney Turbeek in exchange for referring cannabis business he encountered in his union role to Turbeek's law practice. Rush abused his position as executive treasurer and board member at the Instituto de la Raza Laboral in similar fashion by accepting kickbacks from attorney Turbeek in exchange for establishing Turbic as an approved legal provider for workers' comp cases at the Institutio. Finally, Rush engaged in corrupt conduct as a commissioner on the Berkeley Medical Cannabis Commission when he attempted to extort a business that had applied for a dispensary permit. Using Turbic as an intermediary, Rush communicated that if the applicant did not offer him a salary job with benefits he would take adverse action against its application in addition to the prison term the court also sentenced rush to a 3 year term of supervised release and ordered him to pay a fine of $7500 attorney mark turby pleaded guilty in february to one count of making an illegal payment to a union employee and one count of willfully violating an anti-structuring regulation Last August, the California State Bar issued an order that he be suspended from the practice of law effective September 5, 2017, pending final disposition of his case. This prosecution was the result of an investigation by the FBI and the Internal Revenue Service Criminal Investigation Division. And in medical news, in workers' comp claims, it is not uncommon for claim administrators to encounter claimants who assert that they are profoundly disabled from the effects of what seems like a trivial injury. A minor hand injury can end up a multi-body part claim of disability, basically from head to toe. But not everyone succumbs to the effects of an injury, even a catastrophic injury. You can ask a veteran such as Rob Jones, he braved the cold weather on this past Veterans Day to complete his mission, that is, running 31 marathons in 31 days. This challenge was after losing both of his legs to an improvised explosive device in Afghanistan in 2010. Jones has shown endurance that few can rival and certainly would not be seen by many as disabled. Jones' final run was on the National Mall in Washington on Veterans Day, where he ran over 26 miles to support his fellow veterans and raise money for charity. He sat up, his artificial legs off, and clearly thought about his last race while he spoke. Jones began his quest October 12 in London, then flew to the United States to race in Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. He has raced in nearly every major city since then, running the equivalent of a marathon each day. There was an air of exhaustion and pain about him, but he seemed determined. Or ask another veteran, Brian Shull. He flew 2012 combat missions in Vietnam and was shot down near the Cambodian border in an AT-28 Air Force jet near the end of the war. He was so badly burned that he was given next to no chance to live. Barely surviving two months of intensive care, he was flown to the Institute of Surgical Research at Fort Sam Houston, Texas, in 1974. During the following year, he underwent 15 major operations. During this time, he was told by physicians that he'd never fly again and was actually lucky to be alive. Months of physical therapy followed, enabling Scholl to eventually pass pass a flight physical and return to active flight duty. Two days after being released from the hospital, Scholl was back flying Air Force fighter jet aircraft. He flew the A-10, A-7, and the F-5. As a final assignment in his career, Scholl volunteered for and was selected to fly the SR-71, This assignment required an astronaut-type physical just to qualify, and Scholl passed with no waivers. Scholl said after the rigorous physical that he did very well passing the physical, and the guy who gave it to him said that, wow, you've got one of the highest scores we've ever seen. He was very strong, he said, internally, even if he looked like hell on the outside because of his burns. He became a member of a small select group of men who had the privilege of flying the SR-71. He ended up flying the SR-71 Blackbird for four years. The SR-71 was the world's fastest and highest flying operational manned aircraft throughout its career. It broke an absolute altitude record of 85,069 feet. That same day, it set an absolute speed record of 2,193.2 miles per hour, which was approximately Mach 3.3. The aircraft has flown from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. at an average speed of 2,144.8 miles per hour with an elapsed time of 64 minutes 20 seconds to cross the continent. Scholl's comeback story from lying near dead in the jungle of Southeast Asia to later flying the world's fastest, highest flying jet seems to suggest that the will to overcome disability is a major component to the healing process after what would otherwise be a catastrophic injury. Scholl just refused to see himself as disabled, despite what dozens of doctors had to say about his prospects of recovery. The term compliance describes the degree to which a medical patient correctly follows medical advice. Most commonly, it refers to medication or drug compliance, but it can also apply to other situations such as a medical device, use, self-care, self-directed exercises, or therapy sessions. Poor compliance with drug regimen is a common problem in many disease areas, especially when patients suffer from chronic conditions. Estimates from the World Health Organization indicate that only about 50% of patients with chronic diseases living in developed countries follow treatment recommendations. But now, new technology may help improve compliance statistics. The FDA has approved the first digital pill with an embedded sensor to track if patients are taking their medication properly. This marks a significant step forward in the convergence of health and technology. The newly approved medicine is a version of the established drug Abilify for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and depression, which now contains a tracking device developed by California-based Proteus Digital Health. The system offers doctors an objective way to measure if patients are swallowing their pills on schedule. The concept could be applied soon in other therapeutic areas. The system works by sending a message from the pill's sensor to a wearable patch, which then transmits the information to a mobile application that can track the ingestion of the medication on their smartphone. The underlying technology is Proteus Discover, which is comprised of ingestible sensors, a small wearable sensor patch, and an application on a mobile device and a provider portal. The sensor itself is about the size of a grain of sand. and has no battery or antenna, as it is activated when it gets wet from stomach juices. That completes a circuit between coatings of copper and magnesium on either side, generating a tiny electric charge. In the longer term, such digital pills could also be used to manage patients with other complicated medical routines such as those suffering from diabetes or heart conditions. Proteus has been working on the pill tracking system for many years and the sensor used in Abilify was the first cleared for use by the FDA in 2012. We can now add diagnosing dangerous lung diseases from x-rays to the growing list of things artificial intelligence can do better than doctors. A new paper by researchers from Stanford explains how ChexNet, the convolutional neural networking they developed, achieved the feat. ChexNet was trained on a publicly available data set of more than 100,000 chest x-rays that were annotated with information on 14 different diseases that turn up in the images. The researchers had four radiologists go through a test set of x-rays and make diagnoses which were compared with diagnoses performed by ChexNet. Not only did ChexNet beat the radiologists at spotting pneumonia But once the algorithm was expanded, it provided better at identifying the other 13 diseases as well. Early detection of pneumonia could help prevent some of the 50,000 deaths the disease causes in the U.S. each year. Pneumonia is also the single largest infection cause of death for children worldwide, killing almost a million children under the age of five in 2015. Andrew G, a co-author of the paper, thinks artificial intelligence is going to be relied upon in medicine more and more. He previously worked on an algorithm that can, after being trained on an electrocardiogram data—that's ECG—identify heart arrhythmias better than a human expert. Another deep learning algorithm recently published in the journal Nature was able to spot cancerous skin lesions just as well as a board-certified dermatologist. And radiologists in particular have been on notice for a while. Previous research has shown that AI is as good or better than doctors at spotting problems on CT scans. Indeed, Jeffrey Hinton, one of the pioneers of deep learning, told The New Yorker that because of the advances in AI, Medical schools should stop training radiologists now. Analyzing image-based data sets like x-rays, CT scans, and medical photos is what deep learning algorithms achieve at, excel at, and they could very well save lives. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Folsen, attorney with Floyd's Kern & Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.